Now, occasionally, we do have records from the uh, girls' school of some of the girls wanting it to be extra cozy, and they'd get up in the middle of the night and try and chuck a couple extra logs in, and they'd get in trouble for doing that um, because they're sleepy and they're throwing them in too hard, and it's chipping the tiles. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Things, a global conversation presented by Old Salem Museums and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. My name is Katherine Carlisle, and I'm the Director of Engagement for MESDA. In each episode of Things, we will aim to use objects to draw out larger connections between people across historical, geographic, social, and political lines. And in today's episode, we're going to take a look at the history of the cockleophon, often called a tiled stove in the U.S. We'll explore its origins in Europe, how European governments in the 18th century inspired their development, efficiency, and popularity, and we'll look at the adaptation of the cockleophon by the Moravians in Salem, North Carolina, and what this ceramic technology can teach us about environmental sustainability. Joining us for our conversation are Tara Logue, Education Coordinator and Potter at Old Salem in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Jessica Steinhauser, an award-winning ceramic artist working in the cockleophon tradition in Ontario, Canada. For those of you who are joining us live, we will welcome your questions at the end of the program. You can just type them in the Q&A. And for anyone who has visited Old Salem, you may recognize Tara from her position behind the wheel in the pottery on Main Street. Tara has been an integral member of our Learning in Place education team, and she has delved deeply into the history of Moravian ceramics, a craft for which um, the Moravians were and still are particularly well known. And in addition to her personal and professional interest in ceramics, Tara leads Old Salem's Out of Bound initiative, which seeks to pull the narrative fabric of the town of Salem out of the 18th century through collaborations with contemporary artists. She is clearly very well positioned to lead off our discussion today. Tara, welcome to Things. What do you have to share with us? Thank you, Catherine. Um, it's really good to be here and I'm excited to talk about some of this today. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. I want to start by talking about the history of cockleophon or tile stoves and how this tradition kind of came into Salem, North Carolina, and what that means for the culture of Salem and especially the development of, you know, colonial North Carolina culture. The Moravians, for any of our audience members who don't know, were an early Protestant group that originated from areas that we would now consider to be the Czech Republic, but originally were German and German-speaking territories. Um, and they kind of migrated into the Herrenhut, Germany area, um, and then eventually to Pennsylvania in the New World and then down to North Carolina. Um, Salem, or what we know as Old Salem in North Carolina, is uh, one of those Moravian outposts in the colonies that was very integral to the development of colonialization in North Carolina. And so even though we tend to think about a lot of colonial culture in America as being this very anglicized culture, um, there's quite a bit of German influence, especially in specific pockets of it, like in Salem. 
And so this is where we're kind of getting this gateway to some of this very like German and more like Eastern European sort of tradition. Now, even though we tend to focus on the story here today in like the 1700s and early 1800s, a lot of this actually has its roots beginning in the 1500s. Around 1550 through 1850, um, globally, but especially in Northern Europe, there was this experience that a lot of us know as the Little Ice Age. Now, this was a extremely cold period compared to modern standards globally that was partially due to large volcanic eruptions in um, Indonesia that clouded the atmosphere with dust and kind of kept some of the sun's heat from being able to enter the atmosphere. But at the same time as that, there was also this sudden lack of solar activity. If you look at the chart at the bottom of my screen, it shows where there's this severe drop in solar activity around the like 1650 through 1700 area. And then there's another sharp drop right after 1800. Um, and this contributed to this kind of global, extremely cold period. Um, in fact, we have documentation from Salem, North Carolina, from the year 1817, where um, Brother Woolley, who was one of the teachers at the boys' school here in Salem, there's an account from his diary where he mentions taking the boys out to play in the creek that morning, and some of them brought their games, and they're playing marbles. And he mentions that there's frost on the ground, the air is cold, it feels like it might snow. And it feels like this kind of, you know, cozy sort of late November, maybe December sort of vibe in the atmosphere. But then you look at the date and you realize he's talking about the second week of August. And for those of you who live in North Carolina, we all know that the second week of August here nowadays, it's not uncommon to see temperatures in the upper 90s or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We never would consider there being frost on the ground in the second week of August. And so that's from 1817. So that really shows you how dramatic of a temperature difference the Moravians in early Salem are experiencing. And so all of this kind of cold period going all the way back to the 1550s leads to an increased use of firewood for cooking, for heating homes, also for light because there's documentation of it being darker, especially in Northern Europe for longer. And so because of this, what we see is a intense period of deforestation all over Northern Europe. And this becomes especially a problem in the colder areas where people need more firewood to be able to keep their homes warm, to be able to even keep their animals warm. Um, and so this becomes a pretty severe problem. And so what happens is people start looking for solutions. And all over like Northern and Eastern Europe, you see different sorts of solutions popping up to this overuse of firewood. Um, in the 15 and early 1600s, you start to see these designs of like masonry heaters that are designed to kind of trap heat in. And then eventually people start um, throwing bowls on a potter's wheel, um, ceramic bowls and kind of sticking them in to kind of radiate that heat outward. And then all of a sudden you get this explosion of different types of designs of masonry heaters and kind of ceramic or plaster masonry stoves um, that are designed to hold in heat and 
create like more heat radiance from one fire. Um, and eventually, uh, you hear I've got two different slides um, that show kind of two different types of stoves. So on the left-hand side, I've got a combination of a um, fireplace or a hearth with a cast iron stove. Now, a lot of Americans are probably way more familiar with cast iron stoves than with masonry heaters, tile stoves, ceramic stoves of that nature. Um, and that's because of the way that industrialization kind of impacted the American view of heat. Um, and so this drawing of the combination iron stove and hearth is actually what we have present on site in our historic mix house right now. Um, and this is a design that was commonly used in a lot of situations, especially in places like England and some parts of Europe um, in, and in the colonies where you have people who are rationed in their amount of firewood that they're allowed to use. So they're using fire to, you know, cook their dinner, to dry their clothing in the wintertime. They're using their fire to keep their kitchen space warm while they're cooking. And then from that same fire, they're raking the coals into this iron stove. Um, and that allows the room on the other side to gain heat from that fire. And it's a relatively efficient system, but it does have the problem that the iron stoves heat up very dramatically. Um, and you can burn yourself on them if you're not careful, if you have children or animals running around. Um, and because the iron kind of absorbs that heat so quickly and disperses it so dramatically, it doesn't actually hold it for very long. So you do have to continue feeding wood and coals to that system in order to maintain your heat. Whereas when you look at a more masonry heater style um, or a tile stove, a ceramic or a plaster type stove, um, what they started to develop in Europe was this design of having channels within it that move around the design and kind of snake and coil their way around the inside of the stove so that the heat slowly has to travel and heat up every single square inch of the stove. And when you're working with elements like clay and mortar and plaster and stone, they absorb the heat differently than metal does um, and they hold it differently. So when it releases that heat, it releases it in a much slower and more even way. Um, so not only does it reduce the, um, the capacity for maybe like burning yourself on the stove, but it also is going to give you longer heat from less fuel. And this is incredibly important when you're looking at a time period of deforestation of them running out of fuel. Um, in some cultures, you look at them using things like peat as their fuel sources instead of wood. Um, and that becomes more and more popular as the trees are being cut down. Um, and so that's not just impacting you know, the landscape, it's also impacting your water sources, your erosion, it's impacting all sorts of other ecological factors as this deforestation continues. So in 1763, there's this sort of, um, this incident that becomes kind of a part of ceramic folklore, um, where Frederick the Great of Prussia 
1763, he holds a sort of contest for all of these different potters and craftsmen to bring forward different designs for stoves and heaters that would use the least amount of wood. And this is something that he's kind of putting out as a solution to this deforestation problem. And so people come through with all of these designs and the winning design is what kind of becomes our larger scale cultural notion of what a kakulofen is. Um, Kakul means tile and ofen is oven or stove. So that's our tile stove is the German word kakulofen. And uh, you can see here, I've got another kind of cross section of what these stoves look like. Now the design that wins from his competition is this sort of rectangular boxy design with channels that function in almost like a coil sort of pattern around the inside of the stove. And it is sometimes a combination of refractory brick um, with clay tiles on the outside and sometimes just the clay tiles. Um, and so a kakaloven is very different than, you know, say a brick oven with tiles slapped on it, um, because when you're heating them, the, the stoves have to be able to expand and contract with the heat. So the tiles are actually the skeleton. And Jessica's holding up a design here in her window, which I believe is actually an image of the winning pattern from the competition in 1763. So it shows what those stoves should really look like. Um, and you can see that the, the design that she held up actually has these little windows in it, which also increase the surface area of the stove. And in a moment, when we look at the Moravian designs, you'll find that they also have windows in it. They're almost identical to the one in the book that she's holding up. And so this competition takes place in 1763, and it's sort of, standardizes the practice of um, how these stoves are designed and how they're built. Whereas before you had all of these crazy different designs that are ranging in scale and materials, the competition in 1763 kind of standardizes it. And now most people have the same idea in their head associated with the word kakalofen. And so, now we get to talking about the Moravians in Salem. Our first master potter in Salem was a man by the name of Gottfried Aust. Um, he was born in an area that we would now consider to be Poland, um, but he was culturally German at this time period and eventually migrates down to Herrenhut with the rest of the Moravians, um, where he was trained as a potter. And after that, he moves to Pennsylvania and then eventually down to North Carolina to help settle at the town of Bethabara and then eventually Salem. And with this, he comes down to Bethabara in the 1750s, um, which is important because he's coming down here before the competition has happened with Frederick the Great. So when Aust was learning how to build tile stoves, he was learning it before the practice had been standardized. And when he comes to North Carolina, he's coming to the back country. Um, the ports are not good for trade. There are not a, there's not a good road system for communication. Uh, there aren't really access to newspapers and things like that over here. And what kind of worldwide news he is getting is largely going to be English and not German. 
And so because of this, he is in this uniquely isolated pocket of German culture that's not as keenly connected with the rest of German culture as it would be if he were still in Germany. And so his stove making tradition kind of takes on this unique life of its own that is separate from the stove making tradition in Europe that is heavily influenced by this competition that Frederick the Great holds. Um, and so we see this uniquely German American idea of Kakulofen um, that comes from the tradition of Gottfried Aust and um, what he establishes as kind of the standard for Moravian tile stoves. And um, so I've got a picture here of some of his molds and tiles. And in a moment, I'll actually hold up some of them that I have with me today. Um, but these are plaster molds that have kind of an acanthus leaf pattern carved into them. Um, he moves towards making molds out of plaster um, around the 1790s when it becomes easier to import bags of already made plaster. Um, prior to that, he was making a lot of his molds out of bisque fired clay. Um, and so it's very absorbent, it absorbs moisture, it allows the clay to shrink away from the mold. So it's a, an ideal sort of material for making mold work. Um, and then over here, you've got the backside revealed of one of the stove tiles. Um, now, by his time period, they're already used to working with square or rectangular shaped tiles. And then they're creating this sort of raised frame around the back so that when you construct the stove, each of the tiles kind of stack on top of one another, almost like the way we would think of Legos stacking on top of one another today. Um, and then the backside, when the stove is con constructed, gets completely filled with a clay mortar. Um, and that's important because when you fire the stove, having a clay-based mortar needs to be able to expand and contract with the heat at the same rate as your clay tiles. Um, if you were to use something like concrete, your whole stove would crack apart because that expansion ratio is going to be so different. Um, and so this is a tradition that he's kind of bringing with him from Europe. And then it just so happens that when he gets to North Carolina, the kind of clay we have in this area is like exactly the right kind of clay <laughs> that he needs to get the kind of thermal absorption that he needs from his tiles. Our red clay here in North Carolina is like the perfect earthenware clay for that. Um, and so here you can see where some tiles have been laid out before they're put together. Now this is a photograph of a um, restoration from the 1970s. Um, and this is a restoration of the largest stove that we have on site, which is now present in the Zoll of the single brother's house. And um, you can see here where the glazed tiles are the original tiles and then the unglazed ones are the reproduction tiles that were created to go along with that. Um, but I like this image because it shows really well what the inside of the tiles look like and how they sort of fit together. So you kind of see the Lego building taken apart and you can see all of the components of it. Um, and then here are some of Gottfried Aust's stoves. 
Um, so these two stoves that I've got showing are from the 1780s. And they are a good example of the kind of stoves that he's working with. Um, they're very rectangular, they're very boxy, even though they both have different patterns of tiles on them and are a slightly different size, you can see that they maintain the same basic form of that rectangular shape that's on six wooden legs um, on a heavy base. And they have that window in the middle for uh, radiating heat from more surface area. And this is extremely similar to the design that Jessica's holding up now in her window. Um, it's almost identical to the design that won in the contest in the 1760s, um, but Gottfried Aus wasn't there for that contest. Um, and this is the same design that he's using in the 1750s prior to that contest. And we know this because he carried a set of molds with him from Pennsylvania when he moved down to North Carolina in the 1750s. And these molds were carved by a master carver in Bethlehem in Pennsylvania. And when he brought those molds down to North Carolina with the intention of making stoves, he had a set number of tile designs and stove designs that he intended to use. And we know this because he, all of the stoves we have from his period are pretty much exactly the same. Um, so he already had this one way of making stoves. And that's what he did, and that's what he taught his apprentices to do after him. And this is a design that he was using in the 1750s before Frederick the Great ever holds that competition. Um, and so it's interesting because for his time period, it's kind of ahead of its time. But then later we'll see where it slowly falls behind as his apprentices are learning from him and not from the big fancy stove makers in Europe. And so the two traditions kind of separate. Um, and you'll start to see the designs in Europe become much more evolved and different, whereas the ones here in Salem remain pretty much the same all the way through the Victorian era. Um, and here's another large one. This is the one from the Gemeinhaus in Bethabara. And so this is a much larger stove. It's designed for heating a much larger room. And uh, you can see here, it's got several courses. It's got kind of like two bases to it. So it's up on this sort of elevated platform. And um, this style here, I've got a close-up of one of the tiles. It has what we call a spiral flower pattern on it. It's very ornate, it's very Baroque. Um, when Gottfried Aust was learning a lot of his designs, he's learning it at kind of the tail end of the Baroque period. So you see a lot of that influence in the designs that he's using on his stoves. And then eventually that passes down to his apprentices. Um, Rudolf Christ is the next master potter. He's um, Al's successor. And the two stoves I have here are a good example of some of the ones that Christ is doing where you can see the design has almost changed. Not at all. <laughs> it's pretty much the same exact design that Alst is using. The only difference is the embellishment on them. Uh, and so in the one on the left-hand side, we've got what we call a um, patera shell. Um, so this sort of floral shell pattern 
on the tiles that's been embellished with painting um, using copper oxide and manganese. Um, and this still has some of the leftovers of that Baroque style, which is very much going out of fashion by the 1790s. Um, and then you move into that black stove on the right that has this very simple black glaze, um, a simple oval pattern on it. It's much more neoclassical. It's much more modern in terms of its decoration. Um, but the design is still that six turned wooden legs on a heavy oak base. It's still a rectangular design on a platform and it's still got those two little cutout windows for that radiation of heat. So Chris is still using the same training that Alst has given him. And um, just to kind of give an idea of why they're doing what they're doing, um, there's this interesting thing where we look at um, English travelers would come through Salem and they would stay at the Salem Tavern when they came. And we have this interesting interaction in the records of the Moravians where we find that the English travelers that stay at the Salem Tavern start to raise complaints because of the tile stoves that are present in the Salem Tavern. Um, the tavern is a much more anglicized culture than the rest of Salem, which is catered to German Moravians. Um, and so it should be relatively homey for English people because it's designed for, to host them. And when English people come to the Salem Tavern, they find that they are confused by the German tile stoves because they can't see the fire. And they don't like that they can't see the fire. <laughs> they're used to their hearths and they're used to their, you know, iron stoves have not really completely taken off yet at that point. So they like to be able to see the fire, to feel the coziness, and to also know that the fire is safe. Um, and they're not seeing the reasoning behind why the Moravians are doing what they're doing. Why are they using these stoves? When they look at the type of you know ecology going on in the colonies at this time period they're not seeing a lack of firewood they're not seeing all of the environmental reasons for this um, but there are so many other reasons too why the moravians are using these stoves um, i have here a quote that's actually from the 1890s and it's by mark twain and it's an excerpt from a essay of his called Some National Stupidities. And it's in his book From Europe and Elsewhere. Um, and this quote kind of exemplifies the difference in what it's like to use a tile stove versus what it's like to use a hearth. And so in this quote, um, Mark Twain says, the German stove is by long odds the best stove and the most convenient and economical that has yet been invented. One firing is enough for the day. The cost is next to nothing. The heat produced is the same all day instead of too hot and too cold by turns. One may absorb himself in his business in peace. He does not need to feel any anxieties of solicitudes about the fire. His whole day is a realized dream of bodily comfort. The American wood stove of whatsoever breed, it is a terror. There can be no tranquility of mind where it is. It requires more attention than a baby. It has to be fed every little while. 
It has to be watched all the time. And for all reward, you are roasted half of your time and frozen the other half. It warms no part of the room but its own. It breeds headaches and suffocation and makes one's skin feel dry and feverish. And when your wood bill comes in, you think you are supporting a volcano. <laughs> and I love that quote because it so vividly illustrates not only the kind of sustainability aspect of, oh, you're using much less firewood, but it also gives a vivid description of what it feels like to use a tile stove. Because, um, and I want to thank you so much for introducing us to the cockleloaf and technology, Tara, and how it's evolved over time and we'll continue to see it evolve, um, but particularly how it was used in Salem here in North Carolina. And I just want to remind anyone who's joining us live, if you have any specific questions for Tara and the information that she's presented so far, we'll be happy to answer those. You can just throw them into the Q&A. So um, I'd love to bring in, in Jessica now to um, share with us some um, of what she's creating in her studio in Wealth in Ontario, Canada. And just um, to review, Jessica is an award-winning ceramic um, artist who's worked on a really grand scale. Um, she's breathing new life into this cockleofen um, technology. She was born in Germany and she's earned degrees from the State School for Art and Design in Nuremberg and the State School for Ceramics in Landshut. And um, Jessica, I just want to say welcome to things. And why don't you share with us a little bit about your practice? Hello, everybody. And Tara, thank you. You did a fantastic job um, explaining to the audience um, the history of the Kachelofen. Very detailed and really, really enjoyed it. Um, excellent. <laughs> so, um, Yes, um, for just correction, I, I was not born in Canada. I, I was born, uh, I was not born in Germany. I was born in Canada to um, German and Swiss parents. <laughs> so, and, but my parents moved back when I was just four years old. So I grew up in Germany. First, why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you became particularly interested in ceramics and then how you took on the Kakalofen um, in your practice? Okay, so I, um, Growing up in Germany, um, um, I I decided, well, I, I struggled in school. I'm dyslexic and uh, my parents did uh, recommend that I probably should find a trade instead of doing some business school or something. Somehow I ended up with ceramic and uh, I started my apprenticeship when I was 18 years old at the Keramikfachschule Landshut. And... Um, it was my dream. So I've, I've always been a potter. So I did a three-year apprenticeship. Um, and then after finishing that, I came to Canada on my own and worked as a production potter. And um, to be honest, though, my dream, even finishing apprenticeship, I've always wanted to build Kachel open. So my dream is over 30 years old. <laughs> so it's never too late to start something new. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that was just my passion. And we had a kachelofen in our house and I do recall them installing it. And I watched, um, I watched the people install it and it was fascinating to me. Uh, mind you, that was probably in the early eighties. And so it was quite, quite ugly. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, it was a kachelofen. And um, when just mentioning to Tara, even in Europe, um, the Kachelofen and uh, the Potter has been long two separate apprenticeship. It 
as I, even in, in Germany and Europe, Austria, it was one job a long time ago, but very early on it split in two separate apprenticeships. So, yeah, so I, it's been my dream all along and I loved production pottery and, um, but this was always, always something I wanted to do. Can you share with us a little bit about um, how people come to, you know, commission these? Um, where, where in the world have you installed the cockleaf, and and why is it that that people are are, requ are requesting them? Is it because of their conservation principles and their usage? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, people contact me. Like it took, so my journey for building the Kachelofen or bringing the Kachelofen to North America started about 10 years ago, once my kids were a bit older and I just thought, no, this is the time I either start this or not, you know? Um, but I was very early on discouraged just because there is no Kachelofen installer uh, to, to the extent that I need it um, for this to work and, um, it, it was a long, hard process. So now, now that uh, I have installed about 44 um, all over the place, um, North America and Europe, Spain, Germany, um, uh, they, um, I, I can't even believe it. Like when I first built my first one, I thought, how can I, like I thought it would be within Canada uh, and more enough Ontario, but it's been, everywhere but um, it's it's only now that I think that uh, Guelph my hometown here where I have my studio will make a, a start um, giving a Salem competition for most Kachelofen in a city in North America <laughs> so um, yeah uh, people contact me we have conversations occasionally some people will um, now with the internet we can we can do all the uh, design work with um, internet and facetime and sometimes people fly me to their location um, and i stayed three days to design the stoves yeah am i right in thinking that you may have some images of your work to share with us or maybe even something that you're currently working on in your studio you want me to show you around i think we would love to see it okay come with me um all right, so this is this is usually where I do all my design work. I um, I do all my drawings um, by hand. I did try SketchUp, but it it didn't really work for me. So after the design process, and uh, then I can show you the production area. Here is my other office, very messy. Um, but um, come to my studio. Here you see Dean. Dean's working uh, on filling the molds. I have finally um, um, handed this off to somebody just yeah. because I've been more busy with doing drawings and all, you know, organizing business. And um, so, yeah, you can see him making cajon. This is the back area. And here are some cajon drying for my next project. Um, that's going to be in, am I getting you seasick over here? <laughs> <laughs> <You're doing great. laughs> this is um this is a uh, stove that's going to go to um, Quebec City and uh, something special that I designed for them is um, I think my client is from um, uh, 
France originally, and he, he likes the fleur-de-lis, so we made a mold for fleur-de-lis. For those of us who may be joining us later on, on the podcast, I just want to describe what it is that we're seeing. It's In your studio, you have these shelves of these differently shaped tiles that will become the components to put together the cotylophon, and these are um, fired unglazed at this point. Um, right. But I assume that, you know, you're sort of in the middle of the process with this one. Yes. So they're drying. They're going in the kiln soon. And um, here is my, um, all these shelves are plaster molds, just like Tara's um, was showing. Um, each stove has different plaster molds that go together. And uh, yes, these guys are going to go in the kiln. I have three kilns lined up here. And then they be glazed and uh, oh, bisked <laughs> and glazed. Yeah, so then you can see here um, the, the stoves I'm working on right now. I'm very happy to announce that I'm building myself a stove, finally. <laughs> uh, this is gonna be my bedroom. It's gonna be ruby red with this beautiful motif on it. So we're seeing these really lovely um, tiles again, um, all different shapes, going to be uh, used to construct the cotylophon, and um, they are this really kind of gorgeous, deep, deep red color. They're really beautiful. Um, projects that I have lined up, um, I keep track um, right here um, of different jobs that change from um, working stages and I'm trying to keep track of it. It used to be very easy when I just had one or two, but now it's just been, it's been great. <laughs> very busy. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, one of the things that I had, um, that, that Tara had mentioned um, is that, you know, in the development of the design of Kofloof and they seem to be getting taller and larger and a little bit more exuberant um, with the tile and the motifs that would have been designed on, on there. And I'm wondering, Jessica, could you share with us um, some of the sizes of the cockloven that you have created? What are people requesting when they want one in their home? Um, well, most, peop mo most people, um, there's the first question that I have for my client is, is this going to be your sole heat source? Because we want to make sure uh, that the Kachelofen is going to be big enough to heat your area comfortably. Most of my clients have it not as their sole heat source. So they, they, um, they, would they have the Kachelofen more for, yes, for heat source, but also aesthetically and, and for it to be a piece of art in their home that is functional and also um, the heart of the home. It becomes, um, from what I hear from my clients, in the end it becomes the place where people want to hang out and it's just a very cozy warm feeling that you don't get um, necessarily from regular metal stove. <laughs> so you know both of you have um, a great deal of experience working with these, both you know more contemporary modern ones or or Tara and Salem ones um, from the 18th century. And I'm wondering, um, could you describe a little bit about what the experience is like to use them? Like, what is it like to start a fire in them? How does it smell? What? How much light do they provide? 
Well, um, the Kachel oven um, is is not designed that you will see the flame constantly. Um, the, the very important for the Kachel oven is to function properly that you have completely dry wood, that your logs, like Tara mentioned, are split, not the North American quarter chunks, like, but that they are Holzscheiter, which is um, a smaller version of a wood that is split kind of like, wait, do you see it? Like a um, very skinny pizza shape um, that you should not burn um, um, non-split um, wood just because it takes more energy to burn. So that's very important, completely dry wood, split logs, and that you have a top-down top fire. Um, People, some clients ask, oh, I don't, you know, it's always so much work to get a fire started. With a cattle oven, it is not a lot of work. If, if it's calculated properly and if the shafts are prop, done properly, you build your fire, the logs, let's say six split logs, you put kindling on top, you light it. And in my case, and Tara didn't have that, is the damper is open. So a lot of oxygen comes into the fire chamber. Fire chamber um, and the fire just starts and you lock the door and the fire goes beautiful orange flames and it's a very hot quick fire as Tara mentioned and um, all that heat um, thousands up to thousand Celsius gets absorbed into the masses of um, the Kachel oven and I will show you our shafts are built out of um, I get refractory brick from Germany which is slabs that are quite thin and with this is what uh, we built these shafts. Um, it is clay-based and stone-fired, um, and um, with that, the mass heats up. And once there's only blue flames and um, little embers, you lock the air intake. And actually, that's however long it takes—maybe an hour, hour and a half—that oh, gets absorbed into the kachel oven. So there's no fire after an hour and a half, but that is when your stove will heat up and radiate comfortably for eight to 12 hours. Yeah. Tara, what about a pretty similar experience? Yeah, so um, one of the things that is so remarkable about these is that literally it does heat for eight to 12 hours. And even historically before they're packing them full of refractory brick, your, the documentation still suggests that they're only lighting two fires a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. Um, now, occasionally we do have records from the uh, girls' school of some of the girls wanting it to be extra cozy and they'd get up in the middle of the night and try and chuck a couple extra logs in and they'd get in trouble for doing that um, because they're sleepy and they're throwing them in too hard and it's chipping the tiles. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but um, one of the great things about it is that it is a very different heat than if you've ever used a cast iron like wood stove. Um, it's much more like just, I don't know how to describe it except cozy, um, which is why a lot of times they do, there are versions that have benches built into them or seating around them because it's the kind of heat that feels almost like a body because you've got this insulation of the tiles so it feels like a deeper heat instead of like ow hot metal it's like tiles with heat behind it and um it's the kind of heat you just want to like hug yeah um, and in fact i think i have an, a photo of me 
from the MHA conference last year where we built a tile stove at the conference. And I think I have a photo of me hugging it um, mm -hmm. because it's just, it's so nice. Um, you just want to lay on it all day. And when you look at a lot of cultures that, yeah, and here's an image of one of Jessica's with a dog sitting on it. So cute. Um, it's a modern one. It's, it's my most modern one, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, and they're great. And you see lots of examples um, from different cultures that use them in like folklore where there's references to like, oh, this lazy person spent all day laying on the stove. Um, and that's because you want to lay on the stove. It's really <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know um, in what in what ways do the historical practices of um, Moravian potters or potters elsewhere, um, maybe translate to practices that we could implement today in terms of heating our homes or, or any other ways that we might be able to start practicing sort of ideas of sustainability at home. So one of the, the biggest things that jumps out to me is because of the amount of regulation that especially the Moravians and Salem were dealing with on this, they were constantly having to think about where their wood was coming from for their fires. Mm -hmm. um, and I think today it's so easy to, for you know, most like modern people to push a button on the thermostat and turn up the heat and not give any thoughts to the oil, the fracking, the whatever, you know, that, or even if you're using, you know, gas logs or whatever, it's so easy to not think about where it's coming from. And when you are using a wood stove like this, especially a tile stove, you have to think about what kind of wood you're getting. You have to think about how you're cutting it. Uh, you think about how you're building the fire. It causes you to be more aware of what your impact is. Um, and then on top of that, when you're building them efficiently and correctly, they burn in a way that they're not releasing, they're not creating carbon emissions the same way that an open fire does. Um, and so the burn itself is actually incredibly efficient. But on top of that, you have to think about it. And I think the thinking about it is the most like applicable thing for a lot of us that don't have stoves like this in our homes is building in like, how can we build in ways to make ourselves think about where our heat and our energy is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's a large part of it for me. Right. Practicing mindfulness um, in terms of our home energy use. So it may not be practical for most people to um, tear out their existing home heating systems and build and install a beautiful cockle open by, by Jessica, but, but we might be able to suggest some alternatives um, and, and, at least think in terms of um, being mindful about the ways that we use energy at home. In, in that case, um, I, there is a bigger movement now with the Masonry Heater Association and with Masonry Heaters in general, um, that uh, there is more often, it doesn't have to be a kachelopen. I think that any thermal mass heater is going to be helpful for our whole uh, environment and because they all work on a very similar way um, the the soapstone version uh, mostly familiar with the name Tulikibi 
or the North American masonry heater, which has stone and, and it just, there's a lot of different versions of the Russian stove. Um, the, even the um, what it, rocket stove, which is more a rustic version as well. Um, I think any, any stove that um, encourages less wood and heat storage is what we should be focusing on for sure. And we actually have a number of great questions from those who are joining us live, and I'd love to um, pose some of those to you. Um, Amy Pfeiffer is curious to know, and we talked a little bit about this, but the difference in efficiency between using a metal firebox and a clay built one. I mean, we, we talked about sort of the, the thermal conservation of clay, uh, but perhaps we could speak just a little bit more to that specifically. Well, um a metal stove, the advantage is it heats up the area quite quickly, but it also cools down quite quickly. And anything like metal does not store heat. So metal box versus uh, like chamotte with the clay-based refractory brick um, will always be more efficient for sure because it will store the heat. Mm -hmm. We actually have a specific question, um, Tara, asking about the pricing for these stoves. Um, I suppose we can speak specifically to, to Salem um, in the 18th century or perhaps lot further so, on. Historically, when you're looking at, especially the stoves in Salem, the prices vary, but I would compare it most to like transportation. So um, a nice, expensive high-end tile stove would run you about the same price as like a very nice horse um and so like if you have like you know a pure breed you know with all of its papers i don't know anything about horses but that's roughly the cost of the like high-end fancy tile stove at this time period versus like you know your workhorse that you use to run around the farm and check on the animals, that's gonna be closer to the price of your lower end stove. Um, and Gottfried Aust especially had different versions of stoves at different price ranges. Um, he had this kind of like economy model tile stove, which actually had no glaze on the tiles. And so what they're doing is they're just getting bisque fired clay tiles and then after the stove is complete, you just rub stove polish on it, which is like a mixture of graphite and lamp black to make it look nicer, but it has no actual glaze on the tiles. And so that dramatically decreases the cost of production. Mm -hmm. So that's the cheapest version of a stove you could get mm -hmm. uh, as far as tile stoves go. Mm -hmm. um, Jessica, there's a question for you. Um, are there any additional supports that might be required to install your cockle oven? Uh, you mean as the weight for the foundation? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, a cockle oven finished is about 1,200 kilograms. So you will have to have it reinforced um, with the foundation approved by an engineer or somebody who you trust. <laughs> yes. So it has to carry the weight because when we install the stove, we use so much like um, cubic feet sand like I don't know one meter one and a half meter by one like a lot of sand and a lot of water goes in so it weighs a lot and yeah. yeah so that's a consideration for anyone wanting to install one just think about that um 
Let's see, when retrofitting a tile stove, what weight considerations have to be taken into account? We just sort of covered that one. Um, uh, Jessica, what is the time frame for building, constructing, installing one of yours? Right now, um, with COVID, <laughs> it's gonna be a while. <laughs> no, but usually, um, I, have, um, I have about eight projects on the go. Um, and um, they're all at different stages. It can, it can, it's not something that you get within three months. For me to design a stove and to have um, that ready, um, once design is ready and if I have existing molds, it could be um, like a month before I start production and production would take me probably five weeks to make and glaze all the pieces if I have the time. And um, then I, um, wherever the stove goes, you ship it, whatever. It could be three days, it could be two weeks. Um, and um, for the install itself, I work with um, my partner in Austria, Mario, and he comes in from Austria and he and I install usually a um, stove within, I go, it takes us about four to six days, depending on the size of the stove. Do you ever run into any issues um, with fire codes? Well, um, the U.S. actually has been very kind in that regard. Um, it is usually here in Canada that um, it takes me longer to get a permit if I if I go the route with permit. It's a gray area. We have this um, thing here called wet certified, which people think should cover the kachelofen, but it doesn't. It really just in, covers the um, the chimney parts. Um, but I have successfully um, installed a lot of stoves with permits. I think, well, a lot is too much to say, maybe five, six, but it is possible. It just takes an engineer or my architect to sign off on the drawings and um, hand it into the city. So the Kachelofen is covered under as the German stove or Grundofen in the ASTM 1602 code, and that is the American standard for masonry heaters or solid fuel burning somethings. <laughs> for, for someone who, for an ambitious DIYer, um, is there maybe some place that someone can go perhaps on the internet um, to purchase um, the shell or tiles, an antique tile stove? Is it something that you might not recommend someone take on themselves what do you suggest um i i if 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 there is cajon on the internet available antique stoves um and um i have installed successfully 44 stoves with mario and if it's a straightforward small stove i think it might be possible um, I am currently building my own stoves and I'm still going to install them with Mario because this is his full-time profession. He's a master oven installer and it is fire. And um, I personally wouldn't recommend it necessarily. It's taken me 10 years to get to this point and um, uh, not to say that I can't install my own stoves. We did one successfully at MHA and um, it is, it's kind of like comparable. Do you have a dentist that you trust to, um, uh, you know, have fixed three teeth and then, I don't know. <laughs> it's, an, it's an ambitious project. 
I'm not saying that you might not be able to do it, but um, problem here is too that all the literature mostly is in German. So you might have to learn another language. <laughs> that I will say, just jumping in on that, that that is extremely true about all the literature being in German. That's partially how Jessica and I met because when I started researching some of this, I could not find any literature that I could read. And so I found her information and emailed her and was like, please give me something to read. <laughs> um, but uh, also there's a lot of physics involved in getting the draft just right on your stove and making sure that the air pressure isn't too much on the firebox. And there's a lot to learn. It could be, you don't want to, if you're going to be a DIYer to try to take something up, like this on, I would hope that you at least already know something about like chimneys or fireplaces and fire safety, things with that. We have um, like each of my stoves, Mario does calculations on them. So one question that we have um, is wanting to know a little bit more about the difference between your modern stoves, Jessica, and um, some of the historic tile stoves that we may have in Salem or elsewhere. Um, Tara, and then um, on, on both of those points, do you find that, you know, I guess it's depending on the size of the stove that will dictate how much square footage can be heated, but if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. So the difference between Tara's and my stoves? Yeah, historic ones and perhaps ones that are being produced today. Um, the difference between, the, the, the really fascinating part about this is that not a lot is different. Like uh, we use still the same material. Like uh, traditionally, uh, the clay um, to install a kachelofen can be done with clay and sand. And and um, right now I use lime and sand. But um, as for the bricks themselves, I mean, I was noticing that Tara showed my plaster molds, and she showed me the one. And look at the plaster mold that I have, and it reminds me of, is it August or somebody's, like with the leaf motif? Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. I built a stove in Baltimore, and it's, it's still, so really, it, the coolest thing is that I find that there is so much similarity um, in the way I install and make the cajon, I guess, and all the bricks. Uh, maybe my grout lines are a little bit smaller, <laughs> but other than that, it, thing is that it's still um, very much the same. Mm -hmm. I think one of the only differences that I've noticed is um, that somewhere around like the 1800s, I think, it seems to become common practice to put refractory brick inside of the tiles. Um, and the Salem stoves, at least, it looks like Gottfried Alves is not doing that. He's packing them solid with clay, which today would maybe not be considered best practice. Um, but I've actually got, this tile here is one of the original tiles from um, Gottfried Aust and, um, or this might be a Rudolf Christ one, um, but you can see how it's hollow in here. And um, this one would have been like packed Yes, you can see Jessica's, the, the tiles look almost identical in terms of construction, um, but hers, you would pack a refractory brick in there with the mortar for extra insulation. And Oust is just packing in more mortar um, and clay. Um, 
And so that's a little different. And then a lot of the, the best practice now is to use these little metal pins to kind of clamp the tiles together so that when the stove expands and contracts, they all kind of shift around, but they don't come apart. Um, we don't have any evidence that the historical Moravian potters are doing that. Um, the only thing we do have is if you look in the corner of this piece here, there's a hole. And all of the corner pieces have that. There's been some conjecture about there maybe having been a metal piece that you would thread through the corners, like a piece of rebar kind of. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're doing that. The reason, no. <laughs> yeah, and so you can see my corner pieces have also the hole. And um, for long, I was taught in my apprenticeship to do it that way. And the, the, the reason being that you having the hole might suggest that they did have wire for the corners um, because the corner has extra pressure from expanding and contracting. And it's a weak point in the Kachelofen. And I think that, so when we install the Kachelofen, we bend the wire in here and have it hooked to some part inside the stove for extra security for this piece not to, like a loose tooth, fall out. And um, I think that's would suggest to me that even just for the corners that you would have had some sort of wire, connected and in some of my pictures in the Roslyn stove where I show the um, the um, the process you will see um, the shamote what we call it shamote that is pressed into the clay um, uh, in the back yeah um, have either of you been involved in the restoration of stoves I have not a little bit mm -hmm. um, and that this year was my first year having any involvement in that. Um, so we have a very large tile stove in the Zoll of the Single Brothers house, which I showed a photo of earlier laid out on the floor. Um, this year we uh, collaborated with a local potter and stove maker, Ron Probst, um, who is mostly retired, but very generously um, offered to help with this anyway, um, because he has worked with Old Salem in the past in restoring some of our stoves, um, and he's very knowledgeable about them. Um, and so he led the restoration, and then I just kind of assisted to learn um, what his practices were. And what we did was we ended up taking all of the tiles apart um, and cleaning them up, because when the stove had been put back together in the 1970s, they did it with concrete, um, which is just the worst possible yeah. thing that you can do to a tile stove. Um, and some of the tiles were original artifact tiles, so they were very brittle, old red clay, like local red clay. And then you're trying to use diamond bit tools to scrape concrete off of them. And ultimately the concrete is stronger than the clay. Um, so it was incredibly difficult trying to get them apart without damaging the original tiles. Um, we did do that. We did have to piece some of the tiles back together a little bit. Um, and then we reconstructed the stove with refractory brick inside 
um, with the metal pins inside and with a proper clay and sand mortar um, mm -hmm. so that even though it probably will not be used in the space that it's in because it's in one of the original museum buildings, theoretically it could be used. Mm -hmm. um, to, to, that, to that, if I may, um, the school that I uh, attended in North, um, in Landshut, our school was very heavily involved in restoring old Kachelöfen um, in all the castles around Landshut and that area. And um, it, it's, it's still, um, yeah, it's still being done everywhere. And most castles, if they have a functioning Kachelöfen, they would have it heated with uh, very low voltage electric heat. Mm it still creates the same radiant version, but it's definitely not gonna um, damage a museum by any chance. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's also um, one of those things that, uh, you know, here in the US, there are not a lot of historic tile stoves just laying around because they kind of died out around the 1830s for the most part in the US, but they're still very present in Europe. Um, and they're all over the place. So there are still like, you know, industrial companies that make stoves like this in Europe, but then in the US, like almost no one has heard of them. Um. <laughs> to that extent, like in Austria alone, there is existing 48,000 Kachelöfen existed in Austria alone. And every year they build 15,000 each year to add to the 480,000 stoves today. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, I think maybe all of us who have um, a desire that, you know, America might take on more sustainability practices, that would be a pretty incredible thing if we could see more Kachelofen being um, built and used here. Um, and I will say to that, to that end, we, we do have just one more question related to a modern install, which is, um, you know, if, if it's used as your primary heat source, what what is the typical square foot size, Jessica, for um, the homes in which you are installing um, these tile stoves? Um, it really, really, um, for a sole heat source, usually it's a small, like a smaller uh, cabin um, home. Um, I uh, The footprint of the stove is about two feet by three feet and yeah. then about two meters high, I would say. I love that we've gotten so many questions from people who are asking very specifically how they might be able to have cockloofen in their own homes. It sort of gives us some, some hope. Um, and then lastly, um, before I wrap things up, Jessica, I'm wanting to know um, if you might be able to kind of walk us through um, the Roslyn stove process. Yes. So um, do we have pictures for that? I think we do. So um, when I started designing for Rosalind, she wanted a round stove and I've, I've built one round stove, but you have to figure out what size of kachel you want to end up with. And um, math skill um, has, um, has come in handy, or I have to refresh my memory for that. So I, I figure out what size of kachel and I will, and a uh, complicated process, but maybe not if once you do it a while. So uh, next is, um, that's my simple drawing. Mm, since then, yes, and here, 
Uh, Roslyn stove was not far from here, so I was able to go and make a paper cutout just to make sure that the dimensions and the trim, I design all trim and make molds for each piece. Um, so it takes, it, it changes if you're looking at um, the, the image cut out, maybe, maybe the crown has to be taller. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time on design for sure. <laughs> and then the next one we have the pieces coming out of the mold. Um, and then I check them on this radius uh, again to make sure everything fits also because I'm ordering the door with the specific aid radius in Germany. And since clay shrinks, you can, you can see that it could be a disaster if you, if you don't do that part right. Um, and um, it seems to be fitting well. <laughs> These are raw pieces. Yes, and then of course you have disasters where you, you on a timeline and you fire stuff too fast and it blows up in the kiln. It's, it's, it's a very common thing to have happen to, um, this is a view into my kiln with a lot of uh, broken pieces around. <laughs> and then um, I guess I, yep. <laughs> Uh, finished pieces. Um, this is the time when we pack them all up and go to location to install. And then what we have next is here you can see the, the chamotte, the refractory brick, um, uh, glued with the lime and sand into the cavity. And you can see also the little metal wires um, that then hold the cajon, each cajon together. This is the fire chamber from the top. It's a very small stove. It's only um, 80 centimeters in diameter, and um, but it will um, heat your area. Next, that's the first shaft coming up. So you can see it's with a single um, uh, skin and there is a cardboard, as you can tell. And when I was a kid, it freaked me out that the oven builders would put cardboard into the stove because as a kid, you know it's gonna burn, but it is there um, to create um, a space for the inside of the stove to expand and contract without cracking the, um, the cajon uh, on the outside and, and the grout. And then you can see cleaning out holes, so little doors that we glue in but with mortar and then you can loosen it to clean the shafts or vacuum them every eight years or however you often use the stove. And um, there we go, it's working, <laughs> fire going. It, that's a small stove, yeah. What's well, really beautiful, and it's fascinating to see the process and um, and how modern it looks, but really how the technology hasn't changed very much. Um, you know, I want to um, thank you both so much for your time today and for sharing this incredible technology with us. Um, and of course, the history of the Kachelofen and how it may inspire us to practice more sustainable efforts in our own homes. And I want to thank all of our participants who joined us um, and asked uh, wonderful questions of the two of you and the way you were both able to kind of walk us through um, all of these areas in which we're so curious to learn more. And um, I want to share with anyone who's wanting to deepen their knowledge, we do have a few resources that you can explore on your own. You can learn more about Jessica and some of her amazing work at her public Facebook page, which is at Kachelofen Art. That's at K-A-C-H-E-L-O-F-E-N-A-R-T. There's some very cool images of her process and of um, her modern designs and installs around the world there. So I recommend you check that out. 
Um, take a look at the tile stove in Old Salem's collection, the Christ stove um, that Tara showed us earlier. Um, you can view all of our online collections at oldsalem.org. If you want to know ways uh, that you can make your own home more energy efficient, the U.S. Department of Energy has a helpful home energy checklist, which includes ways to increase the efficiency of your home. And if you're interested to learn more about climate change or Honestly, if the entire topic just kind of freaks you out, um, I recommend checking out the podcast called How to Save a Planet, which asks very big questions, but talks to people who are making a difference today. And remember, it is your gift that enables us to continue drawing these connections between things and bringing those conversations to you. So thank you, Tara. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks everyone else for joining us today. Thank you.